This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Nick McClellan. Nick is a Pacific Affairs correspondent for Inside Story, and he joined me to discuss all things Pacific politics. We discuss French President Emmanuel Macron's recent visit to French Polynesia, as well as the ongoing politics and legacy of France's historic nuclear testing in the Pacific. We also discuss what occurred at the last Pacific Islands Forum meeting, as well as the COVID-19 situation in the Pacific, and the resolution of Samoa's leadership crisis, seeing Fiame Naomi Matafa become Samoa's first female Prime Minister. It's a real joy to be joined by Nick McClellan. He is the Pacific Affairs correspondent for Inside Story. He also has been a reporter for Islands Business Magazine, uh, which is based in Fiji. And Nick is very much in touch with everything Pacific, having lived there and reported there for so long. And he joins me now. I'm so delighted to welcome you back onto the program, Nick. Hi there, and how are you doing? Good morning, Amy. I'm good, thanks. That's good. We just have so much to get through, so I'm just going to cut to the chase. One of the major events that we did see in recent times was a long-awaited trip that had been cancelled, obviously due to the pandemic, which was that French President Emmanuel Macron was to visit French Polynesia. He did so, and we saw some imagery of him being presented with floral necklaces and these kinds of things and being welcomed very warmly by the people in French Polynesia. There was a lot of people hanging on his words in terms of nuclear issues. So I wonder if you could take us through that visit, but then also the implications and the effects of the visit on the population there. Yeah, it's been a a long time coming. Um, Emmanuel Macron visited uh, Australia and New Caledonia back in 2018, and he'd pledged that he would visit all of France's overseas dependencies during his first term of office. I was due to go to Tahiti in April last year, April 2020, to report on the proposed France-Oceania summit where Macron was going to meet with Pacific Island leaders and also meet with the government and people of French Polynesia. As you say, that was postponed because of the COVID pandemic and it's finally come off at the end of July. Um, It's a significant visit in a number of ways. When he was in Australia in 2018, Macron talked about France's Indo-Pacific strategy, the jargon, you know, where France is seeking to align itself with uh, um, the ANZUS allies, uh, with uh, um, other Western countries lining up against China in the Pacific. And Macron talked at the time about an India-Australia-France axis in the Indo-Pacific, basically to line up with major powers. Um, And France wants to maintain its presence in the region, both in New Caledonia, Wallace and Futuna and French Polynesia. So that was a key element in the tour. Um, There were also a number of domestic issues in French Polynesia that the government wanted to talk about. Obviously, the COVID pandemic and uh, recovery from COVID, um, but also the legacies of nuclear testing. France, as we've talked about before, has conducted 193 nuclear tests in French Polynesia at Mororoa and Fungatuf Atoll, and many local people, particularly uh, uh, nuclear survivors groups, were waiting to see what the French president would say about uh, France's responsibility for the health and environmental legacies. 
Well, what did they say? Because I know I was really keen to see whether there was any movement on this because there's obviously an ongoing legacy within the population and the environment because of these nuclear tests. There was some, not as much as some people were hoping. Indeed, France tried to undercut the issue from the agenda to improve the profile in a number of ways. Firstly, at the beginning of July, they organised a round table uh, to discuss the nuclear issue but they held it in Paris, not in Papeete, the capital of Tahiti. Um, and so many people who wanted to have a say on this important question couldn't participate. Um, indeed, a number of the opposition politicians, two former presidents, two members of French Polynesia's representation in the French National Assembly, the key groups, the Church, uh, um, Association 193, which works with nuclear survivors, which is the Association of Former Workers, Polynesian workers who staffed the test sites, they all boycotted this meeting in Paris, thinking that it was basically a bit of a, a waste of time. And the commitments that were made at that meeting weren't very strong. There was some pledge for funding for a, a commission called CIVEN, which is the commission that provides compensation for uh, people whose health has been affected by nuclear testing. France set that up in 2010. But in the first five years, CIVEN only approved 2%, 17 cases only of applications for compensation. So 2% and uh, veterans and uh, military veterans and, and workers who staffed the test sites have been complaining ever since that the, the system needs to be reformed, um, that it's rigged against people who can't provide the documentation needed and so on. Mm. Um, the big thing that people were expecting and hoping for, many, was that the president might say sorry, that as well as concrete moves around clean-up, around compensation and reparations, that there might be an official apology from France for the legacies. France for decades denied that there were any health effects from radioactive fallout. Now, of course, they admit that that was nonsense, that there are effects, um, but they're still trying to downplay this issue. And um, many people, particularly in the opposition and in the nuclear survivors groups, were very angry that there was no apology, nothing, nothing said. So there has been some moves around opening up the archives, around some extra funding for the Compensation Commission, but very little compared to what might be done to address this question. The it's other... really a slap in the face to hear that and then to read in your piece on Inside Story that on the 17th of July 1974, there was a test, just one as an example, um, which spread with the fallout spreading across as far as Tahiti and exposing 80,000 inhabitants to hazardous levels of ionising radiation. So this is not a, a limited effect. This has very wide-ranging effects. Absolutely. And and. For example, French Polynesia has the highest rate of thyroid cancer in the world amongst women aged 40 to 50. So people who were born during the, the era of nuclear testing uh, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, um, thyroid cancer, which is, is related to exposure to ionising radiation, is a, a major problem in French Polynesia with a much higher rate than you'd find you know, in other countries around the world. Um, similarly, there's a lot of concern about problems of cancer and leukaemia. And indeed, there's not a proper cancer register. That's one thing that the people were putting Macron on, that there should be uh, an effort to uh, set up a, a proper cancer register to uh, look at, you know, how many people are dying uh, from cancer. The other thing the government of French Polynesia pushed when President Edouard Fritsch travelled to Paris for this meeting in the beginning of July was a reimbursement 
for the Social Security Fund. It's called the CPS. It's their Social Security Fund, their welfare fund. And since 1985, over, over recent decades, the government of French Polynesia has spent 80 billion Pacific francs. That's about 1 billion Australian dollars. It's a lot of money putting out funding for cancer patients in French Polynesia. Now, that's just not people who've been affected by radiation. It's other cancer patients. But given the rates of cancer and leukaemia, thyroid cancer and so on, that people attribute to exposure to radiation, the local government has spent a billion dollars addressing this. And they're saying this is France's responsibility and France must reimburse the local government for the cost of this sort of thing. So behind the theatre of Macron's visit, and there was a lot of theatre, mm. literally kissing babies in the streets and uh, walking, walking the ropes, shaking hands and so on with people, there was a, a, an underlying concern that France still has responsibility for its history in French Polynesia. Yes, well, it's true. A lot of the theatre was really reported and not as much on the nuclear issues, though I did see a little bit of it, of course, and including your piece, which is very extensive if people want to check it out on Inside Story. On a health-related note, obviously there must be an incredible burden on the health system given how much the cancer rates affect the entire population, obviously, and must mean that there is a demand on hospitals in French Polynesia. So I wonder, um, is that a concern given that after Macron's visit we've seen a huge outbreak of COVID which seems quite linked you know, French Polynesia has had a terrible, terrible time during the COVID pandemic, uh, both economically because it's a country reliant on overseas tourism, which has obviously been devastated by the closure of borders or attempted closure of borders uh, going back. They had a major surge of cases um, between uh, August last year and January this year with uh, many, many cases. So French Polynesia has 28,330 cases which is an enormous figure for a country of only 280,000 people. So that's a, that's a lot of people. And just this week, um, in the last 24 hours, on the latest figures, 1,294 new cases reported, four deaths. So that that rate is 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 enormous for for a, a relatively small country. And as you say, the the entourage that came with Macron. Uh, who travelled from France to Tokyo to, to visit the Tokyo opening of the Tokyo Olympics before travelling on to French Polynesia, there's a lot of concern that um, it amplified the spread of the Delta variant. And as we know in Sydney and Melbourne at the moment, it's a terribly contagious variant of the novel coronavirus. So I was looking at the data yesterday and the you know before Macron arrived in mid-July, the average over seven days was about nine cases a day of COVID. So it was certainly a problem, but under, under a level of control. But that surged enormously, the seven-day average of nine cases a day in mid-July. By the time Macron left at the end of the month, it was 28 cases a day. And a fortnight later, just a fortnight later, this week's seven-day average of cases is 839 yeah. cases a day. So that's an average across a week. So it's gone from nine cases a day in mid-July to 839 cases in mid-August, within a month. And it's a major, major problem. I've been, I'm preparing a story with a colleague in Tahiti about this. Two of the key elements of it is healthcare in Tahiti is under stress. Their main hospital has 
they've allocated uh, just over 200 beds, 212 beds for COVID-related uh, treatment of people, um, including people going into ICU. The latest figures, only seven beds were still vacant. And one of the, the features of Macron's visit was that there was, because of the movement of people around his visit, um, there was a lot of spread to the outer islands. With uh, his grand entourage, he came with 150 people, you know, oh. journalists, security people, adv officials, advisors, and so on. Plus, of course, all the local dignitaries. People came together for uh, dancing and, and, and cultural celebrations, enormous welcomes, crowds literally lining the street to say good day. And that spread Delta. And so you have a situation where he travelled to an island called Manihi, which is in the outlying Tuamotu archipelago, uh, not the main society islands where Tahiti, the capital is, but uh, to the outer islands. Manihi had never had a case of COVID, but just uh, days after his entourage left, uh, the first case of COVID was reported by the nurse on Manihi. There are other islands, Makatia, Rangaroa, Tikahau, and others in the Tuamotu archipelago, which is a fairly isolated area where Delta is now spreading. And it's very concerning because there are more extreme cases have to be medically evacuated to Tahiti, which um, places pressure on uh, on the hospital system. So, look, this is, you know, really related to the fact that the people in French Polynesia don't control their country. It's still an overseas dependency, still a mm. colony, some would say, of France. And uh, so in terms of enforcing border controls, those come under the authority in many places of the French government rather than the local elected government. It just has so many echoes and obvious parallels with colonialism itself. You know, France bringing in the Delta variant and causing an uptick in cases that are double the number of the cases we're seeing in Sydney each day now. I mean, it is really just so eerie to see that happening. And as you mentioned there, to point out that quite starkly, French Polynesia doesn't have that control, that colonialism is still alive and well. Well, you see in uh, New Caledonia, which is much closer to Australia, it's one of our closest neighbours, they've managed the burden of, of COVID much better than French Polynesia, partly because they've got economic advantages. They can export nickel and, and so on in a way that they're not as reliant on tourism as French Polynesia. So the vectors of movement for, for, for people returning has changed. But the governor of New Caledonia is currently headed by a pro-independence president, a guy called Louis Mapu, who was elected in July as head of a, uh, a government, multi-party government, that's majority in favour of independence. And that government's just announcing that they're thinking of shutting down flights from Paris because of the concern about people arriving from France. And under the Numera Accord statute, which is the local governing statute in New Caledonia, which was an achievement from the Kanak independence movement, they have more control over health quarantine at the border than exists in French Polynesia. So it's, it's, it's a case. But let's not forget, this is a problem, you know, wherever you are. Many Pacific countries have done well to manage the COVID pandemic. The smaller island states like Tuvalu, Samoa, Vanuatu and others have just got a, a handful of, of cases that they've caught at the border. But bigger countries like Fiji, even though they're independent and have uh, obviously uh, a much better health system than some of the smaller states, are still facing a terrible burden. Fiji, however, seems to be slowly getting its uh, uh, most recent uh, tragic surge of cases under control. You know, Fiji's had uh, um, 40,000 
uh, more than 40,000 cases, nearly 400 deaths in a country of uh, around 900,000 people. But they, in the last couple of weeks, through mass vaccination programs and more controls on movement, Fiji starting to get the situation under control. At the beginning of this month, they had about 1,200 cases a day. Just the day before yesterday, the latest figures I've seen was down to 467. Still an enormous burden on the health system of Fiji. Australia and other countries, China, uh, United States have been providing vaccines and health teams and so on to support the Fiji government. But they've gone past the peak of this latest surge, starting to get it under control, but still facing the same challenges that we do in Sydney and Melbourne in other Australian cities. This is a global pandemic, but it really reveals um, the gaps between countries and within countries on a global scale. I think it's really important when we think about the tragedy that's happening to many people in Australia, we think about how it burdens developing country nations that are so close to us. Yes, well, we are fortunate to have a really sophisticated health system here because we've had a lot of wealth and built it up over a number of years. And even now, one could argue it's chronically understaffed and underfunded. So it's really staggering to think that Fiji and French Polynesia are dealing with such a huge burden of COVID cases. And also, I did see that there were 26 deaths in the last 48 hours in Fiji as well, bringing their overall death toll to 394. So, yeah, it's good to see that the numbers are slowly coming down, given how hard Delta is to suppress. So there's some obvious light at the end of the tunnel. You mentioned their vaccines, and I know Australia is trying to assist. I did see recently in the news that Australia had actually reached out to the United States in order to secure some of their AstraZeneca supplies that they weren't using um, because they're not using AstraZeneca at this stage in the pandemic in order to replace the amount that Australia was going to give to Pacific Island nations, for example. What's your take and what's your understanding of the level of Australia's contribution and perhaps even New Zealand's in terms of really stepping up and actually providing support to our neighbours? Australia, it's a, it's a very contradictory situation. On the one hand, Australia has been providing a lot of AstraZeneca, particularly to Fiji. I haven't seen the latest figures, but it's more than 700,000 doses have been provided from Australia to Fiji, warmly welcomed by the government of Fiji. New Zealand, a smaller amount. We've given, I think, 30-odd thousand to Papua New Guinea, which is a much bigger country, so less, less involvement there. Um, other countries have been providing uh, uh, vaccines to their dependencies. The United States has been very active in the northern Pacific. France, obviously, providing Pfizer to um, its countries. But the bigger picture is, is a long term. You know, we're going to have to cope with COVID into the future. It's clear that the pandemic will continue on into 2022. The need probably for booster shots or, or, or vaccine capacity to deal with new variations, as we've seen the shift to the Delta variant, which is becoming widespread around the world. And one of the things that people are very critical of is Australia's role in the World Trade Organization. A number of developing countries have been campaigning for, for, since last year for changes to um, intellectual property rights over the uh, technology, over the vaccine manufacturer and so on. And indeed, in, from our region, Fiji and Vanuatu have joined this international push from uh, South Africa, India and other developing countries to waiver the um, what are called TRIPS patents. These are intellectual property patents over uh, COVID-related 
technology, drugs, pharmaceuticals, and so on. Because big companies like Pfizer and uh, the manufacturers of AstraZeneca are doing remarkably well out of this pandemic. You know, billions and billions of dollars flowing towards the manufacture and distribution of drugs. And many developing countries are saying, we want to build up uh, the capacity to manufacture drugs cheaply rather than have to beg and borrow money to um, get them from major corporations like Pfizer um, and Wellcome and, and, and others who have been you know, really profiteering, I would say, out of this pandemic. So you see Fiji and Vanuatu. Now, Australia in the past, last, certainly last year, has opposed this bid by developing countries to get a waiver within the World Trade Organization. And indeed, the United States and other major countries did initially. The US Biden administration is starting to change its position so I think it's it's really important to keep a, a sense of history and perspective about the bigger picture beyond the immediate battles. Dare I say, I'm, as we speak, uh, looking at the tragedy coming out of Kabul, um, you know, people desperately fleeing. What's going to happen to all the asylum seekers? Will they end up locked up on Nauru, on, uh, on Manus? What's Australia's policy going to be to the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people affected by the, the uh, transition in, in, in Afghanistan? You know, Australia's role, you know, there's a lot of publicity about handing out vaccines, but what are we doing to support vaccine manufacturing in major developing countries um, mm. in the world? And and I think uh, we need to be keeping those sorts of steps in mind. And that's really not that well discussed in Australia, despite the obvious generosity, which is widely welcomed, uh, for example, for the vaccines that we've uh, provided to Fiji, to Papua New Guinea and to some other smaller countries. I'm glad to hear at least there is some of that uh, happening. Clearly, there's room to increase our support. And also clearly to many people in Australia, we do engage in a lot of navel gazing and forget about those in our direct immediate vicinity, including the Pacific uh, nations. One um, area where there's been a lot of political tensions, and we've discussed this in the past, and has been the Pacific Islands Forum. And so I know there's a lot that's been happening and did happen at the recent meeting that was to be hosted in person in Fiji. It was still hosted by Fiji over Zoom. And I did see, you know, some interesting tweets and discussions about the, you know, behaviour of our Prime Minister Scott Morrison and his perhaps um, not understanding, you know, what is appropriate in terms of protocols over Zoom, um, for example, eating during the official opening of the meeting, um, which as a reporter over there, Lajipova, Sherelle Jackson mentioned, um, is considered extremely rude in many Pacific cultures. So apart from that being a clear faux pas, there's obviously a lot more going on of substance in those meetings, including uh, the Micronesian countries. So I wonder if you could share with us the kind of key things that happened at that forum and what we should take from it. Yeah, look, it's the Pacific Islands Forum is the main political agency for the Pacific. Um, Australia, New Zealand and 16 island nations, um, including two French territories, are, are members, full members of the forum. And it has uh, a key role in trying to build a regional consensus around issues of concern, around the COVID pandemic, health response and around economic recovery from COVID, around uh, nuclear issues like uh, Japan's proposed dumping of uh, treated nuclear wastewater into the Pacific from the stricken Fukushima reactors, 
uh, issues around maritime zones and fisheries, uh, maritime borders are very important on the agenda at the moment. And of course, most importantly, the climate emergency. And that's always been a, a source of tension within the forum that Australia, as the largest member of the Pacific Islands Forum, has a different agenda around climate policy to most of our island neighbours. Pacific countries repeatedly have called for urgent action to end the production of fossil fuels, particularly coal, the mining and export of coal, shutting down coal-fired power stations and so on. It's been a core demand because Pacific countries have called for uh, maintaining temperatures well below 1.5 degrees uh, Celsius uh, above pre-industrial uh, levels. So, you know, the Pacific's been talking about this for 20 years. Um, at the time that the most recent IPCC report has come out, you know, many people in the Pacific are saying, well, we've been saying this for a long time, but there, you know, um, this is a problem now, not decades into the future. So at the last face-to-face -face meeting in 2019, there was a huge brawl at the leaders' retreat where the presidents and prime ministers go behind closed doors for a meeting to talk frankly amongst themselves. I was there as a reporter in Tuvalu at the last meeting, and the argument went on long into the night because Scott Morrison was defending Australia's policy about coal and about uh, its very low targets to reduce emissions by 2030. Um, and now even the Biden administration is criticising Australia for its low targets. And when the Americans are outflanking you, you know that it's pretty, pretty hopeless. Um, the transition has now occurred where Fiji is the chair of the Pacific Islands Forum under Varangi Bainimarama, the Prime Minister of Fiji. He takes over over the next year. And uh, last year's meeting was postponed because of COVID in Vanuatu. Once again, this year's meeting couldn't hold face-to-face -face because of the current surge of cases in Fiji. So they've held an online meeting for a day. They will hope to hold a meeting on the sidelines of the United Nations for those uh, leaders who go to the UN every year for the opening of the General Assembly session. And then they're planning, if things are, up, are under control in Fiji, to have a face-to-face -face meeting probably in January, late January sometime, um, to bring the leaders together so that they can talk and discuss about all these pressing issues. Mm. Um, two I'm, things out of the meeting, as you mentioned, important. One is a declaration about sea level rise and maritime boundaries. One of the major concerns for low-lying atoll nations is that um, they might uh, uh, lose territory um, because um, um, islands uh, and atolls would go under the water. And currently under the International Convention on the Law of the Sea, countries, uh, you know, have have control over territory, and that's important for management of fisheries and other biodiversity, marine resources. Um, people are worried that sea level rise might literally make some low-lying atolls disappear into the future. And there's a declaration calling for changes to international law to recognise maritime boundaries as they are. Yes, I was just reading that statement. Um, does, was it, is it the case that everyone signed up to that statement? Yes, everyone, including Australia, um, has, has made that commitment. There are significant global negotiations going on around amending and updating the law of the sea, which was first adopted in uh, 1982, first finalised negotiations, came into force a few years after that. Um, so the law of the sea has been round, and under the law of the sea, countries have what they call exclusive economic zones. So that's 200 miles, nautical miles, around every piece of land. 
And for a country like Kiribati, it's only got 829 square, square kilometres of land, but it's got three and a half million square kilometres of exclusive economic zone. Mm. French Polynesia is five archipelagos, tiny islands, but they're spread over a huge distance, five million square kilometres of ocean. And when we think about fisheries, about the potential for deep sea mining, a very controversial issue in the region, around uh, patenting life forms from the ocean, uh, around uh, geo-carbon, you know, these large ocean states are crucially important, not just for their own well-being and the livelihoods of people who rely on fishing, but about future, you know, geopolitics. And, and so, you know, for the, the countries to come together to say, we want to reform international law to recognise the way in which we will be disadvantaged by sea level rise, which is a problem being generated by the climate change, by the global warming that comes from the exploitation of fossil fuels by countries like Australia and China and the United States and the European Union. It's exceptionally depressing to think that these are the conversations that have to be had and agreements made uh, because of climate change and obviously Australia being such a major outlier, not just in the Pacific, but in the world in general. And as you mentioned there, Joe Biden, you know, singling out Australia. And I know he did send a video to the Pacific Islands Forum as well to talk about climate change and their commitment. Um, before we finish up on the Pacific Islands Forum, I just wanted to check in on that issue that um, you mentioned earlier that we discussed previously about the Micronesian countries, Nauru, Kiribati, Marshall Islands, Palau, and the Federated States of Micronesia. Um, I noted in uh, some Guardian reporting that the only Micronesian leader in attendance was the Nauruan president who apparently disappeared from the Zoom call uh, at one particularly perhaps significant moment. So I wondered if you could perhaps share your insights as to whether that was a significant moment, if that was a protest at all, and whether there's any hope of the Micronesian uh, countries coming back to the forum and participating. This is a major challenge for the forum. As you say, these five Micronesian countries announced their withdrawal in February, uh, February um, following the election of a new Secretary-General, uh, Henry Puna, uh, who's from the Polynesian nation of the Cook Islands, former Prime Minister of the Cook Islands. The Micronesians had put up a joint candidate, um, Gerald Zakios of the Marshall Islands. Uh, they felt that it was their turn um, although there's no written rule that the, the Secretary-General's position should rotate. Um, and they've been very firm, particularly uh, Prime Minister Surangal Whips of Palau, Micronesian country up in the Northern Pacific, have said, we won't come back to the forum, we won't attend meetings until you change the rules about how the Secretary-General's elected and address many of our long-standing concerns as smaller island states. Uh, they're called Micronesia, micro, <laughs> the smaller states um, um, up in the northern Pacific. Um, as you say, the president of Nauru uh, joined the Zoom call, only the only one of the five leaders from Micronesia. Um, he diplomatically absented himself from the speech, uh, from the Zoom call at the time that uh, Henry Puna, the incoming Secretary General, gave a speech. Um, and, um, um, you know, it was a pretty unsubtle diplomatic signal that there's still an unhappiness um, about the situation. Um, the current chair of the forum now, Varangi Bainimarama of Fiji, faces a difficult challenge. He, he pledged, uh, he made a reaffirmed an apology to the Micronesian countries that things hadn't been handled well, pledged dialogue, pledged ongoing support. 
But um, it wasn't resolved at this uh, roundtable meeting. It, I think, will take some face-to-face discussions, but those have been hampered by the fact that leaders can't come together during the COVID pandemic. So the Pacific way of dialogue, of negotiation, of taking time to resolve disharmony and, and divisions is very difficult to do during a pandemic where people can't sit and talk honestly face-to-face with each other. And doing it over Zoom is, is quite complex, as we all know. Yeah. Um, so this is, a, this is a problem that's going to take some time to resolve, and yet it comes at a time where the United States is very actively trying to engage with the Pacific, fearful of Chinese influence in the region, where France, Britain, uh, Japan, Australia are amping up their military role in the region. There's a lot of geopolitics being played out in a region dubbed the Indo-Pacific, but many islanders feel, well, it's a lot more about Indo than Pacific. Mm. Um, it's a lot more about focusing on China than about our core security concerns, which is COVID recovery and climate. That's so true. It's so true. Nick, before we have to wind things up, I really wanted to touch on something we also explored last time, and that was a really momentous occasion. We saw Samoa's first female prime minister elected to that position. It's really obviously an exciting moment for uh, Samoa. And we did see, of course, that the incumbent prime minister um, was very (laughs) reluctant to give up his power. And it really did require court intervention, the country's court of appeal, to actually rule on the matter. So I wonder if you could update us about Fiame Naomi Matafa and what's happened, what brought us to that court of appeal moment, what actually was resolved and and where she is at right now in terms of her leadership. Well, she is the Prime Minister of uh, Samoa, the first female Prime Minister of the country. She was, in fact, a former Deputy Prime Minister under Tuilapa, um, who was the uh, the outgoing Prime Minister. He was in power for many years, first uh, won the Prime Ministership in 1998, um, and his Human Rights Protection Party had governed the country since that time, uh, very much uh, you know, holding the reins in many ways. Um, he resisted um, um, leaving office. Indeed, there was concern that he was acting a bit like Donald Trump, refusing to accept the results. Uh, there's been a battle of court cases over recent uh, weeks, indeed months, and um, the courts have clearly sided over time with uh, the incoming fast government, as it's known. Um, the number of um, uh, electoral petitions challenging the results uh, have been determined by the courts. Indeed, just in recent days, another two uh, members of uh, Tui Lapa's uh, HRPP party, the Human Rights Protection Party, lost their seats um, because of uh, uh, being found guilty of uh, bribery or corrupt practices, uh, vote rigging and so on. Um, And so the current balance of forces is that uh, the FAST party has 26 seats in the 51-seat parliament, so they have a majority. That's been approved by the courts. And uh, Tui Lapa, finally, after after many weeks of, of, of denying the obvious, has come now to publicly acknowledge um, the loss uh, of his position. Uh, not with good grace, but um, there's certainly been a transition. And indeed, uh, Naomi Matafa, the new Prime Minister of Samoa, uh, attended her first uh, Pacific Islands Forum leader as the elected representative just uh, the other day. 
I did see a tweet from the Samoan official government account about, uh, I, I believe she met with our foreign minister, Maurice Payne, and discussed issues of women and girls, for example. So um, I wonder, has she received all of the welcome from everyone else in the region that usually accompanies these kind of major events? Very much so. I mean, she's she's recognised. She's been in politics for a, a long time, a long time Minister of Education uh, in Samoa. You know, she was Deputy Prime Minister in the in the outgoing government uh, for for many years until she broke away from her mentor uh, Tuilapa. She's pretty well known around the region and a very charismatic figure. Um, she now stands alongside Maurice Payne and former President of Marshall Islands Hilda Heine. Uh, women moving into positions as presidents and prime ministers around the region. Um, and you, you notice that um, uh, our own foreign minister, uh, Julie Bishop, and Maurice Payne, uh, and Nanaya Mahuta, the foreign minister of New Zealand, women are taking their place uh, in the public sphere in these uh, governments. Despite that, there aren't enough women in government in many Pacific countries. It's amongst the lowest levels in the world in terms of equality of representation in the, the region. So this change is really important for young women in Samoa and indeed in many other countries uh, who can see that uh, it's possible to uh, achieve high office. And that's a really important cultural question as much as uh, a political well, I'm glad we've finished on a positive note. I know it's a really difficult time for so many Pacific nations and it's great to see that there are some really uplifting and hopeful stories for women, especially in the Pacific. And there are so many brilliant women as part of each Pacific Islands culture. So it's great that they're finally getting um, that ability to engage in decision-making. And of course, as you mentioned, uh, Naomi has been around a long time in politics and brings a huge amount of experience to the position. So it's uh, good to see that finally the real version of merit might actually be playing out for once in politics. So I thank you so much, Nick, for joining us and for taking us through these really vital issues and making us hopefully understand the situation for people in the Pacific a little bit more. And clearly there's a lot more to do. Thanks very much. It's a really dynamic uh, region, but it's really important to say people are responding to all these global challenges about violence against women, about the climate emergency, about responding to the pandemic. You know, people in the Pacific welcome support from countries like Australia, but they're not sitting sitting by waiting. They're right. actively engaged in, in addressing all these challenges. So, yeah, let's keep talking about it into the future. Thank you. Mm. My pleasure. I've just been speaking with Nick McClellan. He is clearly a great expert on Pacific politics, as we already know, and uh, and he is also a Pacific Affairs correspondent for Inside Story and a correspondent for Islands Business Magazine in Fiji. He was awarded the Sean Durney Grant for Pacific Journalism by the Walkley Foundation last year. And you can actually now follow Nick on Twitter if you are so inclined, I included his handle in our tweets so you can follow along his fantastic news and updates on the Pacific if you are interested. I find it really fascinating and he's always across the latest developments there. So do make sure you check in. As an update to this interview, the COVID-19 situation worsens in French Polynesia. When French President Emmanuel Macron left Tahiti on the 28th of July, the total COVID-19 cases were 19,636 and 141 deaths. In just four weeks, the tally has risen by 19,481 cases, making the current total cases 39,117 COVID-19 cases and 311 deaths. 
I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.